as Hillary Clinton uh, looms as the presumptive nominee of the Democratic Party for this upcoming presidential race, uh, it is great timing indeed for us to be examining a fascinating new book called The Highest Glass Ceiling, Women's Quest for the American Presidency. This is a book which examines three women who have attempted to become president of the United States with varying degrees of success. Three very different women. And by the way, this is three women uh, amidst a surprisingly crowded field. There's been quite a number of women uh, over the years who, in one way or another, or to varying extents, have attempted to uh, enter the race for U.S. president in a meaningful way. And uh, these three women include one that made such a run back during the presidential tenure of Ulysses S. Grant, uh, a woman by the name of Victoria Woodhull. Closer to our own day, Margaret Chase Smith and Shirley Chisholm also made uh, meaningful, if ultimately unsuccessful, runs for their party's uh, presidential nomination. And um, the author of this book, uh, Ellen Fitzpatrick, is someone I have had the great pleasure of speaking to on uh, one previous occasion. Uh, she was the author and editor of a really remarkable book called Letters to Jackie, Condolences uh, f- from a Grieving Nation. Uh, some of you may remember our conversation. This book is a, a really riveting collection of various condolence letters which Jacqueline Kennedy received uh, in the aftermath of her husband's uh, brutal assassination. This newest book, again, is called The Highest Glass Ceiling, Women's Quest for the American Presidency, published by Harvard University Press. And Ellen Fitzpatrick, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, Greg. Thanks for inviting me. It's my pleasure, and I've really enjoyed this book thoroughly. Uh, I was almost going to ask you right off the bat a question which I think in, on, on the surface might seem completely meaningless uh, or, or perfunctory, namely, you know, what prompted you to, to write a book about previous women who have run for the U.S. presidency or attempted to do so? I mean, I think we all know what precipitates uh, your interest and what makes this book so timely. But maybe, uh, maybe a better question to ask is why are you uh, prompted to write about other women who have uh, made a run for the U.S. presidency rather than, in a sense, writing more directly about Hillary Clinton uh, herself. What what did you find most intriguing about uh, talking about this, this, this whole topic uh, in the way that you do with this uh, look backward at uh, three compelling women from America's history? Well, I'm going to take that as a combined question because it's a really good one, and I'd love to answer the first part as well. Uh, Basically, it had occurred to me, um, and I got the idea for the book well before I knew whether Hillary Clinton would be running in 2016 or not, Uh, but it occurred to me that we knew very little about the history of women in presidential politics, that is, Each time uh, a woman candidate emerged, and there have been a few in the late 20th century and early 21st century, and it turns out I found uh, much longer back, uh, you know, further back. But each time it seemed as if we were starting all over again, and there was a conversation about, you know, what would it mean to have a woman in the White House as president? And certainly these issues arose with Clinton in 2008. 
And I began to think about the fact that there's a whole field of women's history and uh, wonderful work done in it. There's a whole field of presidential history and wonderful work done there. Had these two fields of research and inquiry ever come together? And more importantly to your question, uh, what how can we contextualize the efforts of someone like Hillary Clinton? Is there a backstory? What came ahead of time? And as I began to probe into this and to look, I was astonished to find out how many women had actually made an effort to run for the White House in the past, how little we knew about them. In a way, the reception that some of them received during their own time in which they were sidelined and not taken seriously was reflected in the body of history. There was very little about them. So they had been sort of lost in the story, almost as if they didn't matter at all. Right. And I, I began to think, gee, you know, maybe it would be helpful in understanding what's happening today to look back and see what happened to them, what did they face, what were the obstacles, how did people respond to them? And uh, we know we knew the outcome. They didn't they didn't win, but <clears throat> and most presidential history isn't written about losers, as we well know. <laughs> but uh, these races, it turned out, and these individuals, more importantly, uh, that I decided to focus on, turned out to be very compelling. Right ahead of us asking about uh, why these particular three women um, out of the more than 200 who have made varying attempts over the years. Um, I want you to say a word about the book's prologue in which you highlight uh, a rather dramatic moment from uh, 2008, which would be uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, first effort at uh, trying to achieve her party's uh, nomination as candidate for president. Uh, This was... Uh, an incident I had completely forgotten about until you remind us about it in the prologue. Uh, Explain what this uh, moment was and uh, the way in which it ties really quite beautifully uh, into the the whole book that uh, follows thereafter. Uh, Well, in 2008, Hillary Clinton was uh, campaigning in the New Hampshire primary, and she made an appearance one evening in a small... uh, uh, auditorium. I think it was a high school uh, auditorium. And uh, she was giving some remarks to her reporter, uh, excuse me, her supporters. Uh, And it was, you know, the kind of event that's bread and butter for candidates that are campaigning in in New Hampshire. And as she was giving her remarks, suddenly these hecklers, these male hecklers stood up in the audience. And they had signs that and they had a chant, <clears throat> and they were one and the same. They began to uh, chant, iron my shirt, iron my shirt. It turns out that they had been, it was a prank, and they had been deployed by a, a Boston radio station. But in the moment, uh, here was this woman who was a very accomplished, uh, you know, uh, uh, candidate. She had been a senator for two terms, and first lady of the nation for uh, the two terms of her husband's presidency, a former law professor, a lawyer, etc. Um, 
being reminded, uh, if we might put it this way, of her domestic, uh, the, you know, the implication being that she should be home doing laundry and ironing shirts. Well, Clinton handled it quite well. She very adroitly pivoted uh, to her campaign message, and she says she laughed, and she asked uh, uh, that the lights be raised in the auditorium. And she said, uh, ah, the remnants of sexism alive and well. And um, what appealed to me as a way of beginning the book was really the collision of here we are in the 21st century. Women are represented in all ranks of uh, the professions and politics and in American life. And yet here was this holdover uh, of the, you know, sort of, traditional notions of where women's proper place was, and it wasn't in a presidential primary race. And it was then that she said, uh, after calling attention to the sexism, she said, this is, you know, part of why I'm running, to, to break through this highest, hardest glass ceiling. And so I thought it, it captured uh, a central theme that I wanted to explore very well. And just to clarify, uh, when you're saying this was a setup, this was not a setup by Mrs. Clinton and her staff. Oh, although, no, no, no. Although, no. in some no, ways... Although, you... <laughs> although, believe it or not, there were those who imagined that. But hmm. no, no, this was a uh, a prank from a, a local radio sto- station to deploy these uh, guys to, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, you know, give her a hard time. And she handled it quite well. But um, naturally, you know, in the political climate we live in today, and we were living in it then, uh, perhaps not quite as uh, dramatically, uh, there were those on all sides who who uh, talked about this particular incident. It was a dramatic moment. We're speaking with Ellen Fitzpatrick, talking about her book, The Highest Glass Ceiling, Women's Quest for the American Presidency. In this book, she examines three different women uh, who each made uh, earnest, concerted runs towards uh, a a major party nomination for president. Uh, One of them from the late 19th century, the other two from uh, uh, the the mid to late 20th century. Ellen Fitzpatrick, let's talk about why you chose these particular three women, Victoria Woodhull, Margaret Chase Smith, and Shirley Chisholm. It's certainly three interesting stories, but as we mentioned earlier, there were more than 200 women from which you could have chosen to to focus on stories. And you also conceivably could have chosen three stories that are sort of located a little more equidistantly uh, along our, yes. our country's uh, historical arc. And, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you didn't. I mean, I'm, I'm really, really glad you chose these three particular stories. But what went into that selection? And is that anything you uh, struggled with at all in terms of, of exactly I, where I to absol- focus? I absolutely struggled with it, Greg. You're thinking like a historian. That's the kind of question a professor would ask a student. Uh, shouldn't we have like a better balance of the chronology here? And that was a really uh, an interesting problem for me as I thought about how to do the book, because what I discovered was that these three women were really the most important, uh, in my view, in the long history, uh, for the following reasons. First of all, 
their candidacy sparked a national conversation about the prospect of a woman in the presidency. And therefore, it was possible to sort of take the measure, the temperature of the times, by focusing in detail on them. Secondly, they emerged in each of them in the context of uh, really a kind of acceleration of the women's movement, which, as we know, goes back into the early 19th century, one could argue earlier. And so they dovetailed with a particular historical moment that was of great interest and that I think really caused this conversation to be had. In other words, they got attention nationally because uh, it was a moment when the whole question of women's equality and women's roles in society was being debated and, and was in flux. And third, they nicely represented a century span. So, you know, Woodhull was attempting to be president in 1872, and we end with Chisholm in 1972. So although they're not arrayed evenly over the century, they uh, represent a century really behind the contemporary story. So that's what, what went into my thinking. But really, they sort of popped out from this long uh, collection of candidates, most of whom didn't gain much traction, but it was of some historical interest that there were as many women that threw their hat or their bonnet, as the newspapers <laughs> like to say, into the ring. Right. Uh, I I am sure it was not all that challenging. Uh, well, I, let me be careful in the way I phrase this. Uh, I think you probably did not face particularly stiff challenge when it came to tracing the stories of Margaret Chase Smith and Shirley Chisholm, who made their respective runs at the presidency in uh, 1963 and uh, 1971, 72. Uh, But Victoria Woodhull, (laughs) we're talking about somebody whose run for the presidency dated back to uh, 1872. (laughs) So I should think that presented all kinds of challenges uh, to you that, that, that the other two maybe did not to the same extent. Well, you know what was interesting about her is that there have been a number of really very good biographies of Victoria Woodhull. She's a well-known figure in American women's history, probably not to the public at large, but um, she's been studied at length, and she's mostly studied as a very radical feminist for her time, someone who was associated with the cause of free love or sexual liberation. And usually her presidential run, there are some exceptions and some good books that are exceptions to this, but her presidential run was treated more as a bit of a footnote. That is, it wasn't seen as central to her story, but, you know, really a part of it, but not a critical part of it. Um, and mostly a symbolic run. But as I looked back at her and I began looking at the newspaper coverage of her and learning more about the way she was uh, viewed in the public sphere, and then I looked a little bit more deeply into her own story, 
Uh, it turns out that I think that this presidential run actually is a very important moment in the arc of, of her life and in this, this larger story. So she was complicated to deal with. Shirley Chisholm uh, awaits uh, a definitive biographer. There have been some smaller biographies of her, and there's one underway um, by a, a wonderful a uh, young woman at uh, the University of Kentucky, Anastasia Kerwood, is working on her. And uh, Smith, there have been a couple of very good biographies of. So I had some good material, as you say, on the more contemporary uh, figures, and Woodhull, too, but not from this vantage point. Right. Well, I'm so glad to know that. I mean, I, I'm not ashamed to say, although maybe I should be more embarrassed than I am to say that I, I had never heard of her. And uh, But the way you describe her, I realize I should have. And, uh, and of course, uh, most of us as Americans, modern-day Americans, men and women both, should know more of these kind of stories, which unfortunately... Uh, to the mainstream masses, tend to remain uh, all too obscure, uh, particularly someone like Victoria Woodhull, who was uh, such an interesting uh, figure in, in, in so many uh, respects. And, and, of course, one of the things that makes her especially fascinating is that she is so much at odds with what we imagine the typical woman of 1871 to have been in terms of right. personality. Um, just sketch for a moment a, a portrait of of her, in a sense, flamboyance. Her well, you list bravado, grandiosity, her appetite for celebrity, uh, which are are part of uh, part of what made her so unique. Well, she was a, really an, an, a, a very colorful figure. She uh, had been born in, in to very humble circumstances in Homer, Ohio. And her father was a bit of a grifter. Her mother was, I think, mentally ill. And it was a really hard scrabble existence for this woman. But she rose to become really one of the most uh, sort of radical and flamboyant figures of uh, women, public figures of her time. And she did that. It's a, a long, circuitous story, which I tell in the book. But uh, she became, at a very early age, interested in spiritualism, which her mother was uh, very much involved with as well. And she, uh, Victoria Woodhull set herself up as a clairvoyant, and it turned out that one of the wealthiest men in the country was very interested in spiritualism. He wanted to be able to communicate with his dead mother. And uh, she made his acquaintance uh, in the 1860s, and um, that man's name was Cornelius Vanderbilt. And by then she was living in New York City, and Vanderbilt was quite taken with her. She was very beautiful, that's one thing I would note, and she was young. She, was in, she wasn't even old enough uh, constitutionally to serve as president, never mind the fact that women couldn't vote either. And so uh, she was... Uh, you know, really, uh, this was, a, one would argue, a quixotic uh, run, but not entirely so. In any case, uh, uh, Vanderbilt was quite taken with her, and particularly the fact that she seemed to be the source of remarkably prescient stock tips. And so he decided that he would back her and her sister, and the, the two of them, the two uh, young women, opened the first brokerage firm in Wall Street um, that was run uh, by women. 
and uh, she became extremely wealthy and, uh, like Donald Trump, was able to self-finance her own campaign for president. Mm. So, so that gives you a bit of a sense of her. She right. Was, and this is this is all before she's even made this run at the presidency. <laughs> so, exactly, I mean, she's already this exactly. fascinating figure. I think one thing that is really striking about her is that clearly from every quotation of hers that you include in your book, she was also someone who uh, expressed herself very well, although it sounds like uh, once in a while things would be presented as her work when, in fact, very likely someone from behind the scenes might have done some of the writing. But uh, but nevertheless, uh, she knew how to put, put words together and, and was also a, a woman of great intelligence and insight. And she, I think, says something so compelling about the time in which this occurred. I mean, in some ways, it seems utterly ridiculous for a, for a woman in 1871 to entertain uh, the, the notion at all of, of being president of the country. But in some respects, that was exactly the time in our history when such a thing might not have seemed like such an outrageous possibility because it was a time of such turmoil. Say a word about that historical backdrop uh, against which uh, this run at the presidency occurred. Sure. The thing that really framed her debate, her her run really, was that it took place during the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, when the country was really attempting to put itself back together again after this brutal and uh, bloody and horrific division that had uh, really occupied uh, and potentially was going to destroy our nation, our young nation, in uh, in the mid-19th century. And uh, in during Reconstruction, the political action, in part, was really over the question of what would happen to the four million emancipated slaves, as well as, of course, to the states in which slavery uh, had existed. Uh, and so the Congress was debating the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, which uh, the first, of course, abolishing slavery, uh, but the 14th and 15th Amendment, very vexatious. Uh, the 14th Amendment conferring citizenship on African-American men, and uh, the 15th Amendment uh, uh, really making it possible for African-American uh, men to vote. And so uh, the women's suffrage movement began to ramp up its activities around these, uh, the debate in Congress over the 14th and 15th Amendment because they thought, thought, okay, this is the opportunity to get voting rights for women. If we're going to enfranchise African-American men, then surely white women, and many of them resorted to racist argumentation in making their claim, uh, should be allowed to vote as well, and all women for that matter. They didn't, and they didn't say it should be only white women, but they were, you know, framing the debate in this particular way at times. Some were, some weren't. So Victoria Woodhull becomes quite interested in the suffrage uh, cause, and they're interested in her. She's got lots of money. She's very prominent. She's well spoken. And um, so she gets into the mix here, and the response to all of this was sort of like, well, you know, uh, the commentators and newspapers are saying we live in unsettled times. You know, we've seen revolutionary change in our society. 
in just the space of a few years. So, you know, the idea of women voting or a woman president didn't seem so entirely outlandish to uh, these citizens in the Reconstruction era who were looking at and assessing the claims that Victoria Woodhull was making. One thing you also mention is that uh, among many things that sort of set her apart as an uncommon candidate, uh, even aside from the most obvious, which was her gender, is this whole notion of her, in a sense, self-nomination. You you tell us it was a time very unlike our own when political parties reigned supreme and their presidential nominees were expected to stand waiting in the wings at a dignified remove. (laughs) Can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) So so describe uh, the way in which uh, Victoria Woodhull did not uh, align with that uh, sort of established practice of the day. Right. Well, you know, this is a this was fascinating to me because, you know, really she uh, the whole idea they I guess Horace Greeley <clears throat> had gone on a very limited uh campaign trip to Hartford, Connecticut and he had given some speech and he didn't even say in the speech vote for me and the Hartford Current referred to him as the great office beggar because he had given this, you know, speech about himself uh at all. Uh, and uh, so, yes, the idea was that, you know, a certain amount of virtue was involved in being president of the United States, a great amount of virtue. And a virtuous man wouldn't be out there begging for votes and promoting himself and saying how great he was. A man of real virtue stands at the side and is tapped on the shoulder. Well, no one, Victoria Woodhull knew that nobody was going to be tapping her on the shoulder. So she was, in some sense, a very modern presidential candidate. She cooked up her own political party to nominate her, and she helped to found something called the Victoria League, uh, a group of supporters who, um, you know, went through the motions. Uh, She was obviously behind this and encouraging it. And they did follow the practice of the day, which was to write her a formal letter asking her to run for president and to be their standard bearer. But she certainly wasn't going to get any attention from the major political parties of her own time. So she started her own. She also started her own newspaper uh, so that she could promote her own campaign. She she claimed on the masthead that the newspaper was completely nonpartisan, except for one thing. It was squarely behind Victoria Woodhull for president. And so she didn't leave anything to chance. The newspapers of the day were highly partisan politically. So she knew she was going to need her own organ, as it were, to um, to uh, flog this candidacy. And uh, she did so to, to great effect. Hmm. We should also make mention of the fact that uh, during the course of this uh, attempt at the presidency, she also becomes the very first woman to ever address a U.S. Congress congressional committee uh, yes. uh, in an attempt to sort of uh, perpetuate uh, her interpretation of the Constitution, which she believed already, uh, in a sense, allowed for women to vote. I mean, preposterous, I'm sure, uh, in the minds of many at the time, but uh, she was obviously a forward-thinking visionary. 
Yes, and she got she got a hearing on that point, and she had support from uh, ben, Benjamin Butler and from some other congressmen behind her position, which was uh, it was a clever argument, and she wasn't alone in making it that. Since the 14th Amendment uh, said that all persons born in the United States or naturalized here were citizens, and since the 15th Amendment was worded that one couldn't abridge uh, the right of a citizen to vote uh, on the basis of, you know, and then, then categories followed that did not include women, but she argued that under the 14th and 15th Amendment, since women were citizens, they were already enfranchised, and she wanted Congress to simply issue a declaratory act, which it could theoretically have done, saying women are enfranchised under the 14th and 15th Amendment as well. Imagine if that had happened in 1870. Women didn't get voting rights until 1920, and so the whole history that followed uh, might very well have been quite different. So she did get a hearing. They didn't... uh, they didn't act as she had requested, but it gave her a tremendous uh, national profile in uh, taking this very bold move. Right. I think we will not reveal to our listeners how this attempt ends. <laughs> but, I mean, suffice it's to say... It's a great outcome, isn't it? It's, a, it's, a, it's incredible. <laughs> I mean, a story. It's right. not a great outcome, but great story. Well, not yeah, certainly not great for her. Uh, not but, at all. But it, it's not that it just ends with with her being unsuccessful, but it really ends in personal and professional disaster for her. Uh, I mean, it's it's really an astonishing turn of events, and her very notoriety uh, as a candidate is part of what attracted such attention and ultimately led to her downfall, but we will leave it to our listeners to... uh, Read that story's conclusion in, in your book. Uh, for those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Ellen Fitzpatrick and talking about her book, The Highest Glass Ceiling, Women's Quest for the American Presidency. From the uh, intriguing story of Victoria Woodhull, we leap ahead to the early 1960s and to uh, a person, a woman that uh, younger people probably have maybe not even heard of, but certainly a lot of us are old enough to very much remember the name Margaret Chase Smith. And I am so glad that you chose her as one of your 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 three women because uh, I realized that uh, I did not know nearly enough about what made her a, a really uncommon and compelling uh, politician. Uh, did you know this before you started your investigation, that she would be as interesting a figure as she turns out to be? I really didn't know that because I I sort of had uh, – I grew up in New England, Greg, and I knew about Margaret Chase Smith as a young girl. I remember learning that she um, – about her, that she was a woman. She was in the Senate, and I thought that was wonderful, and uh, – I also remember knowing, um, I, you know, again, I was, I was very young, but I knew that she was running for president, and I was very excited about that, and I remember saying something to my parents about, gee, this seemed wonderful. And uh, I think that I got brushed back quite quickly from my New Deal Democratic Party parents that we we would not be voting for a Republican in the Fitzpatrick household. So uh, I still thought, wow, you know, she she's this is quite remarkable. And then um, 
you know, as a college student, I knew about her going down in defeat after a long career in 1972 because she remained loyal uh, to uh, the Vietnam War, American intervention in the Vietnam War. She was really brought down um, amidst the uh, turn against the war. Uh, and that led to, you know, to the end of her political career. So I didn't know that she would be as fascinating a figure as she turned out to be. And I came to greatly admire her in the course of learning uh, more about her. She was really a very remarkable and impressive uh, woman. Mm-hmm. And um you know, should have had a real shot at the presidency. Right. John F. Kennedy himself, when he's asked about her candidacy at a, at a press conference, uh, uses, the, uses the word formidable. And uh, we get the sense from the way you describe this moment that uh, the reporter asking it is asking the question with a smirk, and there's sort of general merriment among those male reporters in that room. But JFK was smart enough to, to take her seriously, and, uh, and so did a lot of other people. That being said, one of the things you spend some time talking about is how her pathway uh, into the U.S. Congress was, in a sense, a fairly traditional pathway. That is, uh, it was, in a sense, riding the coattails of her own husband, Clyde Smith. Uh, just talk for a moment about this uh, long tradition in American uh, political life, the widow's yes. mandate. Yes, the widow's mandate was really the the um, most relied upon way, and in fact, one of the only ways that American women were able to enter national politics. And that is a tradition developed in which when a uh, husband, or occasionally it was a father, died in office, that uh, the next female relative who was sentient and, you know, at least uh, uh, somewhat creditable might be tapped by the political parties um, uh, to fill out the term of the deceased office holder. And so uh, the idea was that they would be placeholders in a sense, but uh, then they would gracefully um, leave the stage once the parties had found uh, a suitable male candidate to uh, put forward in the next uh, by-election or regular uh, election that would be held to fill the vacancy. And so it was kind of an ideal system from the point of view of the political parties and the political establishment that is, you know, they didn't have to make a quick decision about who to put in there who might have real aspirations of their own. The assumption was that these women would have no aspirations and would get out of the way. So uh, Margaret Chase Smith was very involved in her husband's political career. She, he was a congressman from Maine, and she uh, ran his office in Washington. And she had been a secretary and office manager prior to marrying him, and she was very, very organized and skilled, and she did a great job. Uh, so as uh, he lay dying, as it were, he um, issued a call that he was up, he was going to be up for re-election, that he, he tapped her as uh, the best successor, and he said, she knows my values, she's worked closely with me, I can think of no one better to take my place. And so the the Republican Party uh, in Maine sort of came around to the idea that she would be a good replacement for Clyde Smith 
in for the short term, and then she ran for his seat. Uh, uh, she she ran in the by election, and then she ran subsequently, and was elected to Congress, and that's how she got into office. And uh, without that entry point, I doubt if she would have ever held uh, political office. Uh, so it was a common entry point at that point in time. We're talking about 1940 now. And it was the beginning of her career. There's an interesting parallel here, I think, to Hillary Clinton in the sense that one of the ways that uh, women were able to disabuse uh, their constituents or the public of the idea that it would be problematic to have women in a high uh, political office was uh, that they sort of got to know them through their husbands. And... Clinton, of course, uh, became acquired a national profile through the two terms of her husband's presidency, for better or worse. There were many people, of course, who who grew to dislike her in that period, but it uh, catapulted her to national prominence, as did uh, Margaret Chase Smith's uh, tie to her husband, give her a chance uh, to get into uh, the national political scene. You also tell us that uh, there is a, another connection between the two women in that Margaret Chase Smith uh, endured uh, infidelity and betrayal by her husband. And uh, we, uh, we actually do not know, it's impossible for us to know at this point, just exactly how she emotionally and mentally absorbed that uh, betrayal. But uh, you, you write about that quite compellingly. Really quickly, when it comes to actually running this uh, national presidential campaign, one of the things you you paint for us is kind of an intriguing picture of how that kind of race was very different from the sorts of campaigns which she waged back home in her native state of Maine. Oh, yes. And, you know, this was a tough thing for Margaret Chase Smith because... She was an incredibly skilled uh, politician, and she, people, her constituents really liked her, and she had this sort of uh, wonderful quality that appealed to a lot of folks in Maine. She would go to, you know, the small towns and in all all areas of the state, and really meet her constituents one on one. They really liked her very much. She was. Uh, she had a long history herself in the state and had grown up in Skowhegan, a mill town, and uh, she just had this sort of uh, wonderful uh, quality to her of directness and, uh, you know, not putting on any airs. And uh, she did not accept campaign contributions and would send back even a dollar uh, to anyone who sent her a contribution with a very kind note. I've read these and seen them in her papers, thanking them, but explaining that she didn't accept campaign contributions. So her style of campaigning when she ran for president just couldn't be translated to the national stage in 1964 when we're beginning to see the impact. Uh, we've already seen the impact of mass media, of television, of advertising, of these growing primaries uh, as a route to the presidency. Uh, you know, she she didn't want to get into raising money. She didn't, uh, she wanted to try to meet people on the ground. Um, she, you know, didn't want to run an expensive campaign, and she simply couldn't be competitive with the values that had 
brought her success in Maine. Hmm. It's a fascinating story. And we should also mention that uh, along the way, well before she makes this run at the presidency, Margaret Chase Smith is also one of the first and fiercest uh, opponents of Joseph McCarthy. And uh, I'm so glad that you include uh, some excerpts from what you call the speech of a lifetime, which she delivered. And this is actually very early in McCarthy's uh, uh, rant against communism, uh, well before many of her colleagues began to uh, uh, react with uh, dismay and uh, uh, over what he was doing. She was one of the first and so courageous in the stand that she took against him. Absolutely. The only woman in the Senate. And she got up uh, within months of McCarthy's first speech in Wheeling, West Virginia in 1950. By June, uh, she had... uh, stood up in the Congress and condemned uh, what she saw as a growing smear campaign and uh, called it for what she thought it was, which was really an effort to, uh, to you know, gain power for the Republican Party on what she called, you know, uh, the four horsemen of calumny and, you know, delineated that she was talking about smearing people, destroying people's reputations and so forth, and she would have none of it. And it was extremely courageous thing to have done. Hmm. The contrasts between Margaret Chase Smith and Shirley Chisholm, who comes just a few years later, are really intriguing uh, in that uh, at least their pathway into power was uh, was very, very different. Uh, Margaret Chase Smith entering the U.S. Congress on this sort of widow's uh, mandate. Shirley Chisholm, in a sense, really doing it the hard way. You say at one point her entire political career had been an exercise in overcoming wild improbabilities. Uh, we don't have as much time as I wish we did to talk about... Uh, Uh, Ms. Chisholm's uh, attempt at the presidency. But one of the things I think is worth our talking about is uh, the uneasy relationship that she had both with uh, certain black male civil rights leaders and with certain women uh, in the feminist movement. And in a sense, the fact that there were issues in both of those constituencies uh, helps us understand uh, the kind of obstacles that Shirley Chisholm was facing in 1972. Absolutely. You know, Shirley really worked hard at rising in the Democratic Party, and she really began when she was a student at Brooklyn College in the 1940s, and she began attending local meetings of the Brooklyn uh, uh, Democratic uh, Club in her district and was just appalled at the treatment of African Americans within it. It was an Irish-dominated political machine at that point. Eventually, because of Shirley Chisholm and other people like her, African Americans were able to depose that machine in due course of time. There was a uh, there was also a redistricting, but these changes allowed her eventually, and she stuck with it, uh, to get a seat in the New York Assembly and then to uh, run for Congress um, and 1968. And she really uh, was, uh, you know, she she faced uh, James Farmer at that point, and um, she defeated him, and that was a remarkable victory. Because there were a lot of um, her colleagues in the civil rights movement and 
um, African-American men who were saying that we really needed uh, a man in this position. It was in the time of the Moynihan Report, um, by the time she's running for president as well. And the the thought is that there was a, a big problem with black, quote, matriarchy, that women were too powerful and should, you know, sort of step aside. Well, she was having none of that, of course. On the other hand, white feminists uh, who gave lip service to her campaign, she felt were insufficiently dedicated to her uh, campaign. And Bella Abzug, for instance, who insisted on standing on the dais with Chisholm when she announced her run for president, never formally endorsed her. And she was very much hurt by that and felt that uh, the many white feminists were sort of hedging their bets and saying, well, we think what Shirley's doing is great, but it's very important to defeat Richard Nixon, and so we can't back a loser. We're going to have to back uh, George McGovern, mm. who, of course, lost in a grand landslide. Right. You also tell us that uh, for for all that Shirley Chisholm uh, brought to her campaign in terms of her own intelligence and courage and skill. Uh, it was a campaign, in your words, marred by disorganization, poor financing, and the lack of an experienced cadre of campaign managers. I mean, it was already an uphill fight, and that made it a still more difficult struggle, which is why, in terms of sheer numbers, she ultimately did so poorly. Yes, and, you know, this was a perennial problem for women candidates. That is, there was wide-scale public doubt about the wisdom of having a woman president, even when Margaret Chase Smith was running. Uh, a bare majority of Americans, when asked, would you vote for a woman uh, who was nominated by your party if she was qualified in every other respect? And Nearly half of the American people in 1964 said no to that. So the political parties and donors were unwilling to put any money towards what they saw as, you know, an inevitably losing candidate. And, of course, Shirley Chisholm was facing both the issue of uh, race and gender in her effort, the prejudices on both sides, in her effort to become president. So very, very hard to put the money together. And as we know, in American presidential politics, if you can't put the money together, it's very hard to get on the map. You can't get the national attention. You can't travel to the primaries. These primaries have proliferated, and it's tremendously expensive to compete in them. And um, so you can't put together the professional campaign um, that is required, really, to, to make a go of it. So um, even Bernie Sanders, who is seen, you know, as a radical, a renegade, who's, you know, done something remarkably different, uh, has raised millions of dollars to uh, put himself on the map and to get the kind of coverage and attention that he has gotten uh, in 2016. So none of that happens by accident. Right. And none of these women had that uh, ability to 
to put the money together until Clinton in 2008. So Shirley Chisholm, for instance, you write, the warmth and enthusiasm of the throngs she attracted carried Chisholm and convinced her she was making headway, but the energy of the crowds did not produce a similarly robust vote on election days. I was 12 years old at the time. This is the first presidential race I remember. And I still remember, for some strange reason, a Newsweek article about the leading Democratic contenders. And I remember in this array of of little photographs and and numbers that Shirley Chisholm, at this point in time, uh, her, her likelihood of winning the nomination was was estimated to be one in 500. <laughs> and it was yeah. you know towards the very yeah. bottom of this array of various uh, candidates. But nevertheless, <clears throat> there she was, leaving a mark, and, uh, and remembered now uh, with, with, with great admiration uh, and warmth. In the last minute that remains to us, uh, what are the lessons for us and or for Hillary Clinton from these stories? Well, you know, the first thing I would say, Greg, is that, uh, as self-serving as it may be, is that I really think it's important to know this history in order to appreciate the historical moment that we are in, and also for voters who are trying to decide how to cast their ballot. I'm not saying that it's an argument to vote for a woman candidate always. Obviously, one has to vote their conscience and pick the person they think will best lead the country. And by the way, all of these women candidates would have said the same thing. Don't vote for me simply because I'm a woman. They all argued that they were qualified and that they had a a great contribution to make. But as you look at the longer history of it, you can see that what it takes for a woman to be competitive in presidential politics And anyone who imagines, you know, sort of imagining that, well, you know, there'll be a better woman candidate who's going to come along soon, um, I think should take a very hard look at what it's required, has been required, to get anybody on the map thus far. Uh, And I think that you get a, a much firmer understanding of the obstacles in terms of financing, the support of political parties, the national recognition that is involved and so hard to acquire for women candidates, the confidence that they might have the ability to handle the truly awesome responsibilities of the American presidency, and also a record of vote-getting. That's what's been remarkable about Clinton. Clinton got more votes in 2008 than any candidate, male or female, in American history in a presidential primary race. Really remarkable. And, uh, you know, clearly has done very well this time around, uh, too. So that's of appeal to the political parties. She certainly has her enemies and uh much vocal criticism of her, and voters will weigh, you know, uh, how they feel about our various candidates. But no one should underestimate this woman hmm. and uh, what it took to get her where she is today. Ellen Fitzpatrick's book is The Highest Glass Ceiling, Women's Quest for the American Presidency, published by Harvard University Press. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your fascinating book. Oh, thank you so much. It was my pleasure.